It wasn't sort of, you know, C, Series A, Series B, but it's like we always received more money when we shouldn't have. And we were always kind of more like of a put down when I think we actually would have deserved praise. So it was a bit of an odd experience. Starting a company is easy. Selling your company, that's a different story. In the Big Exit Show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy around selling businesses by speaking to ambitious and successful founders who have been on this roller coaster before. Our hosts, venture capital investor Johan von Mill and business journalist Remy Hietling. All right, Jan, we're back with another podcast. This one with an interesting entrepreneur, Hannes Klupper. He's the founder of Iversity and the current founder of Hello Better, a fast-scaling mm-hmm. German scale-up. Indeed. Uh, Iversity was a, and still is, a Berlin-found e-learning platform that was eventually acquired by Springer Nature. And it has a very interesting background story, right? Because it isn't a happy story because, yeah, the, the company didn't do so well as the founder thought Initially, Yeah, and that's, I think, interesting to learn also, to share also via the Big Exit podcast, right? Because we often have entrepreneurs who really exit their company for big sums. And in this case, this company was filed for bankruptcy. I think Hannes, uh, of course, uh, started the company with his co-founder. And then in the early days, he tried to make, it's it's a MOOC. It's a massive online course platform, right? To share content from universities. And he's tried to monetize it with students. On that end, he failed. He raised some money also. And then at a certain time, he tried to pivot it also to universities and also to corporates. And what he will do is he will share his learnings because I think they're massive learnings. And I think a lot of founders run into the issue that they have a great idea, but somehow they cannot convince companies and also customers on how to use and to buy this product. And he mentioned also, I think, a few great insights also that he raised money when he didn't need the money, but when he needed the money, he wasn't able to <laughs> to raise the money. And I see that a lot of things happening with founders. He will mention also that he's selling the company and he's selling the company the way, the same way he does as he raised funding. And I think that's an interesting learning because I think that if you raise funding, that's a completely different pitch than if you sell your company because apart from from the amount that you're trying to get, but especially the way the value is added to that company. That's a completely different story. So I think uh, interesting to hear his learnings on that. Yeah, he might have been way ahead of his time because today, you know, with Coursera and the IPO, e-learning platforms have been doing very well, (laughs) at least in the last few years. And I think he also shares in the podcast that he was maybe a bit too focused on the technology side. He They weren't too focused on the marketing of the content, but he had a very good technology, was a very good product. And he says, well, our competitors, they're doing very well marketing-wise, but yeah, the tech isn't up to standards. It's very interesting. He also shares a very interesting uh, learning or great advice for founders who want to sell their company, even if the company isn't doing that well. So uh, I say, let's uh, listen to the story of uh, Hannes Klubber, founder of Iversity. So Hannes, what's what's the heroic story of Iversity? <laughs> um, well, I guess the the heroic story, uh, you know, starting at the beginning is is that we founded the company basically straight out of university, not knowing what we're doing. And I mean, I didn't, I'd never really worked anywhere else before. I did a couple of internships and, and, um, you know, but so that my co-founder for him, it was also, uh, his first job. And we, um, managed to raise seed funding and, you know, build a team and kind of ran with it. And, and give, looking back, given that, you know, uh, um, how little we knew, I'm actually surprised that we managed to, you know, put it t- together a functioning team that 
built a functioning software product that was used by, um, you know, in, in the end, a million people um, from all around the world. And, you know, we... We didn't go to jail. Uh, we didn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, we didn't sort of uh, commit any major uh, financial irregularities. So, you know, given that that uh, everything was improvised and everything was uh, learning by doing, you know, you can look at that and think, hey, that's actually that's actually quite impressive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, and and now, what's the real story behind diversity? Well, um, <laughs> so I get the, guess the flip side of, of that is that um, at some point I, I remember uh, looking at our team and we we're 20 people and there were two people that had had any other job before that. And everyone else was, you know, hired basically, you know, interns that we uh, kept and, and, and everyone was self-taught. And of course, we, you know, uh, did a lot of things wrong. We, for, for many things in hindsight, I feel like we, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. And um, uh, we, to some extent, got uh, lucky when it comes to the timing um, and, and sort of rode that wave and, and, and rode it quite successfully. But I think a more experienced team could have built something, you know, much bigger, much more sustainable. But I think uh, to cut us some slack, you also have to see it was early days for startup companies in Germany in general, but um, also in the education space. It's not an easy space to earn money in anyway. I mean, there there are a lot of education companies. A lot of them fail, and we we had a mixed record when it came to that. We tried out a lot of different things. You know, first um, working with universities. We initially thought we'd we'd sell to universities, and then quickly realized they they had no budget and no interest in changing anything. Then we transitioned to more of a B two C model. Uh, achieved some significant scale there, but also realized that it's a tough market to sell in education unless, you know, if it's not either test prep languages or something that immediately qualifies people for a job, there's no willingness to to pay. And then we kind of pivoted again towards B2B and, and, and saw some traction there, also uh, revenue traction wise, but um, yeah, never really managed to manage to um, make it fly, if you will. The growth phase. So, Hannes, uh, tell us, what was the problem you were trying to solve? Um, we really wanted to um, realize the potential of technology in education. That was really what, what drove us. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, we didn't do enough research to sort of figure out, you know, what, what kind of problem is it that we can solve with this for specific people, but really, yeah, build a product that allowed users to do a lot of interesting things. And, and there were, we saw some early adopters who, who loved it and, and uh, um, did a lot with it. But uh, yeah, when, when it comes to um, willingness to pay, of course, you do need to solve a problem for, for, for your customers. And that's something that we only transition to later, I guess. Yeah, so your consumers didn't pay for the product, right? So probably you needed some funding, right? Also to, to, to build a product and to grow your company. Where did you get your funding from, especially in that early phase of the company? Um, at the very outset, um, my co-founder got some money from a government grant and actually so survived on that uh, solo for, for a while before I joined him. We sort of joined forces in, in, in 2011 and then raised uh, seed funding 
That was also partially government money, but uh, administered by a private fund, and the fund also invested some of their own money. You, of course, were building an e-learning marketplace. How did you find your first customers? Well, um, first it was all about sort of getting users in scale. So we, we uh, built a, a free product that, as I said, initially we reached out to universities and they found that, yeah, they don't really have budgets. They're not really willing to, um, yeah, make any changes. Then we built a B2C product that was free to the user and... Uh, Later, we experimented with commercialization, um, so adding courses that people had to pay for that were more in the area of professional development. And we saw some some nice traction, you know, uh, um, sold a few hundred at a, at a decent price point, um, you know, but struggled to replicate that uh, with with other courses. And then later, yeah, we transitioned to professional development for corporates. Um, they also, you know, got a bunch of pilots, uh, made some revenue. But then, yeah, transitioning to scale is, is where it really uh, um, turned out to be very difficult because the problem is in education, it's always difficult to prove that you have ROI. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And there's always a constraint in budget, right? And also who's paying for it, right? That's also what we learn a lot mm-hmm. with education tech. Hey, and what were, especially on in those early days, right? Especially when you were attacking, let's say, the students directly. What were the, the biggest challenges those days? If you take us back to that moment. I mean, first of all, the fact that, as I said, uh, we needed to figure out how you build a company and, uh, you know, how you recruit people and like how contracts work and, you know, like all these basic, basic things. Um, everything was new and everything had to be learned from scratch. So that, you know, was in and by itself a hurdle. And then when we, you know, uh, had a functioning product and, and we uh, um, offered that for free, and we were the first player in this massive open online course space in Europe at the time. And we, had some some smart ideas that worked really well. So we, Coursera and Udacity were sort of bursting onto the scene. And we thought, hey, we want to do that here. But we don't have any, you know, we're not Sebastian Schroon, uh, one of the leading AI researchers in the world that can offer his own course. So how do we get courses? And then I had this idea of um, creating a, a, an open uh, call for applications, a, a contest, and we were partnered with a with a foundation here in Germany. We offer 250,000 euros, 10 times 25,000 euros to teams from professors around the world to create the first courses. And by that, we could also sort of pull forward uh, our uh, go-to-market a lot because running that contest in its, uh, by itself already made us a player in the space, you know, 10 months before the first courses would go live. Um, so that was very successful. Over 300 professors from around the world apply. We had over 100,000 people sign up uh, early for these courses that we're only going to, you know, actually end up on the platform half a year later. So um, that was something that that worked out really well. But yeah, for example, when it came to online marketing and, and, uh, you know, we we knew very little. And I think in hindsight, a lot more could have, that that opportunity could have been milked, (laughs) if you will, uh, a lot better if we'd known more about how to do it. What is something you would have done differently looking backwards? You now have a new company, Hello Better. What is something uh, with, 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 with your current knowledge you would have done differently in the beginning of uh, adversity? I think 
I mean, given that this podcast doesn't have like 20 hours of recording time, I'd go for like, what would I have not done differently? <laughs> Because that list is significantly shorter. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, what didn't I do differently? I mean, that that's it's, it's really um, uh, the, the beauty of, you know, uh, doing it all over again, is that you can take advantage of all of these learnings um, from your, your previous experience. And I think we have done a lot of things a lot better at Hello Better. And I mean, I guess our success attests to that also. Yeah, for one practical example, maybe. Maybe maybe a costly example. Yeah, just um, how to structure the team, how to run meetings, you know, uh, and, and so how to, where you invest your time, um, what you consider a success I mean, there's so much that where in hindsight, I feel like we generate a lot of heat, but not um, it didn't didn't lead to sort of the desired outcome. And I think, yeah, a focus, I, it's endless. There are a lot of VCs, right, who only say I invest in second time entrepreneurs and not first time, right? And I think you confirm that's a pretty good choice also on that end, right? Or is it? Yeah, I mean, I guess you miss out on the Mark Zuckerbergs of this yeah. world that way, but... <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Very valid point. <laughs> the growth phase. When did you notice your the first sign that you had, let's say, a product market fit, right? That you had some traction and that you had something really where, where you could scale on? With diversity, uh, it, it was really this this contest that I that idea that I mentioned. You know, before we 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 had a decent product, it was being used at you know dozens of universities by thousands or even tens of thousands of people. But um, when we ran this contest, I mean, there were there was there were there was a week where we had like four thousand people sign up to our product for per day without doing any marketing, really. Um, mm -hmm. Or well, I mean, some marketing, but. Almost none. So there was there was demand for online learning, and um, you know we had a, a cool portfolio of of, uh, of content. So I think there we that we really nailed in and in, in putting ourselves on the map as a leading player in this space on a shoestring budget, if you compare it to um, what the other companies in this space had raised and and also required to to build something meaningful here. So a lot of SaaS startups and also marketplace startups, once they get traction, they have a working growth model, a working uh, machine that keeps users adding to the platform, but also keep people using the platform. What was your growth model behind uh, Iversity? What were some of the tricks that worked really well? I mean, at the, the model in general was we had a platform, we partnered with institutions that could be universities, NGOs, governmental organizations, or companies that created courses on our platform that would then attract uh, new users. Uh, the, the issue with that is that you don't really control the experience. Working with partners is, you know, particularly this broad range of partners, many of which aren't necessarily particularly entrepreneurial. Also, they lack experience in doing this. It was sort of the first time for literally everyone that we worked with. So a lot of sort of education coaching quality issues uh, in terms of yeah, quality management issues that's the drawback of it but of course uh, the they you know all did their own marketing for each of their courses and and um that was the upside there that uh, you could work with established brands which is very important in education because yeah it's very difficult to 
um, gauge the quality from outside of a product. So therefore, yeah, working with established brands is a good shortcut to establishing trust with with users. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, there, there are positive aspects to it, but in hindsight, I think we would have done much better if we'd taken all of the knowledge and experience that we gained on how to create a great online course and also our creative ideas and turn those into amazing courses and maybe only two or three of them, but those that are, you know, those would have been really good and sold those rather than working with dozens of different institutions that created, on the, for the most part, relatively, um, you know, standard courses, uh, sort of, you know, putting someone in front of a screen talking at the camera. Yeah. Hey, and what, what, uh, because in, in that growth phase, what we see a lot with founders, entrepreneurs is that, you know, in the early phase, you try to get everybody in right and you try to get everybody on board. And then the second phase is about more trying to get everybody happy and to keep the machine rolling. What kept you awake during this growth phase of adversity? Uh, we had some external, uh, internal struggles. Um, my co-founder was forced out by the investors. Then, uh, we had an angel uh, investor who joined us um, um, as managing director. Then he left, and I was all by myself uh, with this very young team. And yeah, I think that was one of the issues: is that um, yeah, the whole founding team setup wasn't um, very stable, let's say. And I was also caught in this perpetual fundraising trap. You know, looking for money all the time. I, I barely. I barely worked on building the company for the longest time, which which makes no sense. And in hindsight, yeah, I think it would have made much more sense to basically go to investors and say, you know, I need time for a year and actually build a company that others would like to invest in. Otherwise, I'm just running around trying to sell something that no one wants to buy. How did you fund the growth phase? Yeah, I mean, that was also something that uh, wasn't so particularly uh, professionally handled in that we kind of lived on handouts. It wasn't sort of, you know, C, Series A, Series B, but it's like we always received more money when we shouldn't have. And we were always kind of like more like of a put down when I think we, we actually would have deserved praise. So it was uh, it was a bit of an odd experience uh, in that. And, and partially, uh, you know, I have myself to blame because, yeah, maybe, as I said, should have put my foot down or now I, I wouldn't even sort of play along with that for such a long time. But I think, yeah, also our investors didn't themselves do themselves a favor in, in either. I think they should have to just cut their losses much earlier or coached us and, 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 and said, okay, look, I mean, there's no point in fundraising now. You're not there. Uh, this is what you need to do. Go do it. You know? And I think then we would have focused on doing this, but instead, uh, kept us alive and at the same time told me the whole time that I need to raise more, more money, um, which wasn't really possible uh, in that state. So then they brought in other investors. And, and so we had lots of little sort of bridge loans and, and, and so on. So it kind of drip financing model then in the company, Hannes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. At a certain moment, Hannes, there was also a question of, let's say, bankruptcy, right, mm -hmm. in the company. Can you take us, let's say, a little bit of uh, back to that moment, right? What, what happened there and, and, and how did you deal with it? Yeah, we, um, that was the time when we were beginning to develop some uh, good traction on the B2B side. 
and or so we thought in hindsight i think it was uh, sort of a feeble a feeble plan but uh, you know for us it was uh, more than we'd ever made in revenue and we also got a lot of promises if you will from the pilot partners that we worked with that who all said this is really great we want to buy more and so on um and uh, then uh, there was the restructuring of T Venture, the venture fund of Deutsche Telekom, who's one of our investors. And they had initially signaled that they were willing to put additional money in, but then couldn't, didn't want to, weren't able to. Anyway, the, the, the leadership changed and basically T Venture was shut down. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore as an entity. And so when they couldn't invest anymore, then the others also said, well, then, you know, we, we can't do this and we had to file for insolvency. I looked at this and said, okay, I mean, that's too bad. We need to let go of the team. But at the same time, you know, this is the moment where we we actually see some traction here. Um, if we can, you know, get the assets out of insolvency, uh, clear up the cap table, then it's actually a pretty attractive seed investment case because there's a lot there. There's a platform that's been, you know, built over years where we invested a lot of money, built a lot of relationships. We had a million users. Um, you know, we had for a seed company, decent revenues, you know, um, why wouldn't someone invest, uh, in this as a seed case? So, um, basically like eight o'clock in the morning after the day we filed for insolvency, I came back to the office and was like, okay, let's, you know, let's just go out and, and raise seed funding for this with like our CTO and two others from the team, from the core team. Um, you know, a team of four is not that expensive. And, and, and then that's what we did. And within six weeks, I raised uh, another 750,000 euros. And yeah, then we rebuilt the company with that small team. However, then we, we realized that a lot of those promises by the pilot customers that we had were, I don't want to say empty promises, but yeah, I mean, they just, it, it, the scaling didn't sort of happen. They're like, oh yeah, maybe we can do another pilot. And so revenue stayed uh, relatively low. And we had some bigger projects with some big corporates. Some of those could have been, you know, several hundred thousand euros worth. And then I think, you know, it, it, that would have sustained the company in the small state for a while. But uh, there again, you know, suddenly like it, it all looked great. They were super happy. Until, you know, somewhere at board level decided they were, this wasn't going to happen. So we worked with a big German car manufacturer at the time. And we were, it was supposed to do use our platform for a big internal leadership learning uh, project that was, you know, about peer learning, la, la, la. Well, then that car manufacturer ran into a bit of trouble with their technology, as you may have seen in the news. And um, yeah, then everything was shut down. They didn't, I mean, you know, they didn't want to discuss their leadership culture anymore in that context, of course. And so uh, that project, uh, they pulled the plug on that project. And when that failed, uh, we realized, okay, I mean, this is too much of an uphill battle. And at that point, I also was like, okay, I'm, I'm fed up with this now. I kind of want to do something else with my life. And we decided uh, to find a, a, a way to exit it that would, you know, um, allow us uh, to, you know, sort of not, I mean, we, so we wouldn't have to shut everything down and, and tell all of our partners, yeah, sorry, you invested in all of these courses. It's all gone now. So that, that would have been sort of my nightmare scenario. So I was looking for a way out to find a solution that, that would allow them to continue um, to use the platform. The Exit. 
so Hannes, you at that point decided you were ready for an exit. How how did the process go? How did you started to look for a potential buyer? Yeah, we well we thought about first of all who we talked to because there are a number of companies in this in the education space who are interested in what we're doing, who are interested in partnering with us because they wanted to build an education business themselves. So we had a lot of people that we could actually just go back to. So we didn't uh, start from zero and, and just uh, drew up a list of people to approach, but companies that or we went back to companies that we previously talked to about potential partnerships or investment and entered into sort of uh, intensive conversations with, with three players where we had like multiple meetings, visited them, pitched them, la la la. Um, and two of them ultimately declined and uh, Springer Nature then in the end uh, ended up buying the company. How do you switch that conversation, right? Because you were first talking to these parties as a, as a potential partner, right? And then you switch your head also to, let's say, to a strategic partnerships, let's say, buyer of your company. How do you do that, let's say, practical also on your end? I mean, nothing, you know, nothing crazy or sophisticated. I just gave him a call and said, look, we, together with our investors, decided uh, that we will, you know, look to sell the company. And since you want, you know, told us that you have ambitions of building an education business, but you don't have a tech platform, we have a tech platform, let's have a conversation. And and they were they were open to, open to it. Actually, I was just thinking about there were there were more there. Oh no, there were. Huh. Yeah, there are also some American players and the British company. No, we probably talked to half a dozen, but yeah, I mean, three were more intensive. So, did you bluff your way in? Did you did you tell them upfront what the situation was, or were you still like, well, it's going incredibly well, and you have an amazing opportunity now to buy this great company? No, no. I mean, not only were we not profitable, but we, we yeah, struggled to generate, continuously generate revenue. You know, we had like, oh, you had a sale here and then, you know, sale there. But it wasn't a working model. So that was very clear. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't tell them, you know, you're buying a functioning business. But like, yeah, we have a, we have a working tech platform. And I have to say, even to this day, I think the Iversity tech product is one of the best in the market. To this day, I think um, in terms of the feature set and what it allows you to do in terms of the didactics, it's a sophisticated product because for the most part, the education platforms that are successful, unlike us, they focused mostly on sales and marketing. But the product is basically videos and multiple choice, and that's it. And that's but that's not what online education is about. They didn't really even take advantage of the opportunities that that you have with technology. And most education products really suck, in my opinion, still. And selling your company, right, is a decision which you take as a founder, and then in this case also together with your investor. But it's also, let's say, a personal motivation on that end, right? What what is your personal what was your personal reason at that time to sell Iversity? Um, well, as I said, I, I wanted to secure a future for the company, the the idea, the platform, our partners, our users, so that it wouldn't just crash into a wall. That was my first, like, most important motivation. And, uh, yeah, also to find a, a good end to this chapter of my life, if you will. You know, I think I would have been upset if it, if it had just sort of, vanished into nothing mm. and i mean the the website still exists you know the, the the product still exists and and i'm happily nostalgic about it when i go to the website and uh, <laughs> i mean cool. it's not what we had in mind when we started out and it's now yeah i think the products that they sell are actually 
more of the nature of, of what we kind of set out to replace. They are more conventional, um, but I guess they sell better. Uh, you know, um, this sort of very basic training, compliance, and so on. Fair enough. But uh, so I think there's still uh, a product to be built that, that really delivers on the promise of, of technology and education. Uh, and maybe I'll get uh, come back to that at some point in my life. But uh, um, yeah, I'm happy it's still around. Selling your company for the first time, looking backwards, what surprised you most about the process? And um, what did you learn if you ever are going to sell another company? Well, I hope it'd be very different circumstances. I'm not so sure many of the learnings uh, here would apply in that case. I think, you know, if we ever go to uh, sell Hello Better, it, it will be rien voir, as the French say. But yeah, I mean, of course, we we learned a lot about sort of what it actually means from a buyer's perspective. It's like you always have this idea, oh, yeah, we built something and it's super valuable and they must see the value of it. And I think from a buyer's perspective, it's mostly like, how can we even run and operate this? How much will this cost us? And I mean, they just see first and foremost, the the, the cost of continuous operation, um, which is totally fair, but but I think that's um, not something that you sort of, yeah, necessarily have in mind when, when you uh, just look at, at it from, from your perspective. Okay. Hey, and, and, and then because you dealt, of course, with your investor, right? It was uh, you personally reached out to, to players. Who did you get advice for and who did you work with in this, let's say, crucial exit phase? Yeah, it's not like we got a ton of advice. No, I think we actually not even from our investors. They, I mean, they just told us, yeah, talk to them, see what you can do. No, we, we kind of winged it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but but how did you learn that, right? Because you also had to deal with, let's say, a completely new situation also, because you're, of Which course... Which was uh, the case all those years. Everything all those years, indeed. <laughs> new situation. So yeah. that was, the one thing that wasn't new about it to me was that I was in a situation that I had no idea about, because that was a that was the continuous sort of uh, theme that, that ran throughout these years. But it's also about, let's say, valuation. It's also about terms. It's also about, let's say, the process and how to deal with that, etc. How did you, let's say find that knowledge and how did you learn on that end or did you ask to friends or lost, I mean those days there weren't a lot of podcasts on this topic so how, how did you let's say uh, no it, it wasn't I mean it was about, first it was about getting to that point that there was a commitment of willingness mm -hmm. to buy and and that was so the process wasn't much different for the most part than pitching to VC because I, it was all about explaining what our product can do and I mean that I knew inside out mm -hmm. right so it was really about the product and why it's great and you know what potential uh, uh, it holds and what it is that you, they could do with it and i mean this is something we've done all those years right we worked with partners and told them and explained to them how they could use our platform to build a great course so this was nothing where i didn't have to learn anything there i mean that this is something that we were, had been doing uh, for years explaining to our, to people that knew relatively little about this what the potential of this was Then, you know, had, you know, multiple people said, okay, yeah, we want to buy this, then, you know, we, there would have been a competitive process mm -hmm. and, and, and things would have been very different, but uh, it didn't end up that way. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, we, we talked to Springer Nature and, and there wasn't, uh, there were no, no lengthy negotiations because also from my end, you know, I just wanted to make sure that it lands there uh, and it lands softly. Yeah, because of all the circumstances. Did you celebrate the closing? Uh, yeah, sure. Because, uh, you know, as I said, I mean, for me, it was still a success in that. And I mean, 
most startups just disappear into the void. And and in that sense, I think it was still a success. It's still around because people still use it. So all of that time and effort that went into building this wasn't for naught. I mean, there's still people that learn uh, something on diversity and that's great. And I'm happy about that. Did you buy anything for yourself as a present? Um, we had a nice farewell champagne on the top of the Hotel de Rome in Berlin because the notary, uh, the uh, yeah, the notary office where we closed the deal was really close by, and then it was nice summer day. So we, well, no, it was actually well, was autumn, early autumn, but it's so yeah. Yeah, and I think you also should celebrate indeed because your product and your company lives by right. It, I mean, it's still, but also I think from the things that you personally learned right and makes you indeed a better entrepreneur now, a serial entrepreneur. So tell, tell us something also about Hello Better, because that's, of course, your new, let's say, your new path where you're walking on currently. Yeah, I mean, it's very simple. Like, I I couldn't have possibly done what I had done with Hello Better had it not been for everything that I did at Iversity and everything, you know, all the good things and bad things that, that happened over those years. So I'm totally grateful for it. I'm also to- grateful for, for our investors that they gave me the opportunity to dabble in this, you know, uh, and, and and some I think there were some strokes of genius and there was a lot of uh, stupid mistakes also, of course. Hello Better now is in a certain way related in that it's ultimately it's also an education company. I mean, we're in healthcare, but what we do is we teach people, empower people to change their lives and uh, teach them how to live, you know, uh, happier lives by, um, yeah, turning the process of cognitive behavioral therapy into an online course experience where people go through this three-step process. First, they reflect on their current situation and they learn about their mental health condition and the uh, vicious cycles that they're stuck in. And then it's about breaking out of those vicious cycles by taking concrete steps. And the big difference here is that the business model is a lot clearer. These products have recently been listed by the German equivalent of the FDA And they uh, can now be prescribed by doctors and therapists. They're paid for by health insurance. And yeah, I mean, that's a very uh, scalable business. I mean, with other issues, but uh, you don't have the problems that you have in education because here you can do randomized controlled trials that really show the effectiveness of a product. You know, someone has a certain level of symptom severity going in. And after they completed the course, the symptom severity is significantly lower. And therefore, that's, that's the outcome, the effect of your product. In, in at diversity, you know, we had a great course on agile management. But if someone took that course, are they a 25% more agile manager? You know, how will you ever know? You know, that that that's really the, that was really the challenge there. What would your dream exit be for Hello Better, or aren't you even thinking about that at this point? I mean, right now we're focused on building the business, but um, I think everything's in the cards here. It's a, a it's a huge market. We are early, we have a great USP in, in, in terms of the product range that we have, the amount of research we've done, the market access, the listings that we've secured for, uh, for our products, uh, an amazing team. So yeah, I think the sky's the limit here. Last question. Yeah, last question. What's your advice for, for entrepreneurs who are thinking about selling, exiting their company in the, let's say, in the near future? What would be your advice for them? I'm not sure I'm the right person to give advice on that because, I mean, when it comes to, you know, selling a competitive process, I haven't been there. Um, I mean, for people that, uh, you know, try to exit their company because things aren't working out as, as um, they may have hoped, it's don't give up, first of all, mm-hmm. right? I mean, resilience <laughs> is key uh, and, and don't get frustrated. And 
I think it's uh, maybe what I said earlier is like it's really important to think through from a buyer's perspective. You know, what is it that they get with this? What will it cost them to maintain this? And how can you kind of pitch it in a way to that uh, that it's that is really sort of as obvious as it is to you that this is a great thing to buy? Um, because they don't want to sort of if if it's not working great, they probably don't want to sort of continue on the path that you've been on. So you kind of really have to reframe like what is it that someone could do with this if they were doing it very very differently from how you've done it up up to here. Wonderful, great advice, yeah, indeed, really. The valuation. All right, so now onto the the interesting bits. This is a really interesting one because I've virtually had a pretty untraditional journey, to say the least. They started off back in 2011, and they quickly rose to become one of the most successful e-learning platforms here in Europe. And then in 2014, they announced that they had successfully raised a 4.4 million euro funding rounds to accelerate their growth. And one of the participants in Arab was the VC arm of Deutsche Telekom, alongside a few other parties. Assuming a standard dilution of around 20%, which is normal for uh, a company at that stage, that 4.4 million round would imply a valuation at the time of around 18 million pre or 22 million post money. But then things got a bit tricky. According to an article by Business Insider, which announced the acquisition of Iversity by Spring and Nature in 2017, they apparently also filed for bankruptcy. So Iversity filed for bankruptcy in 2016, a year prior to the acquisition. But they were eventually saved by Holdsprink, the parent company of Spring and Nature. And part of that deal was essentially a formal cooperation between Iversity and Spring and Nature. The exact details of which aren't publicly available, but we can assume that basically it's a strategic alliance. Presumably, Iversity wasn't able to reach the growth that they wanted to. And given the circumstances, basically a, a, the emergency cash influx a year before the acquisition and saving them from bankruptcy, I can assume that Spring and Nature was rather opportunistic with this deal. So my guesstimate is that Hulsbank would have invested around a million euros-ish in 2016 to account for the r- roughly 10 people that uh, they had on board and one year's runway. And since it was a transaction in special circumstances, it wouldn't have followed a traditional VC deal. So I expect that dilution at the time in, of that 2016 cash influx was be around 40%, which would imply a 1.5 million pre-money or a 2.5 million post-money valuation. While they probably did manage to grow in that last year, given how close that Spring in Nature was to Iversity uh, at the time, and given that it would be a strategic acquisition for Spring in Nature, I don't expect that there was much of a valuation premium on that transaction. So my estimates for the final acquisition price would be around three to five million. So Hannes, is this guesstimation too low, too high, or exactly right? <laughs> I'd take it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Hannes. It has been amazing yeah. talking to you today. Cool, yeah, no, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show by Peak. We hope you enjoyed today's program. If so, please subscribe to our show on Spotify or on your podcast platform of choice. If you have feedback, let us know. Send us a message to podcast at peak.capital. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us for the next episode. See you soon.